Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. I'm Tim Cronin. We're still talking about selecting expert witnesses. This is part two. We're going to start with where do you find qualified experts? This presumes it's not on something that you've already found an expert in the area before that you've used that you really like. I mean, that's the preference. If you have an ER case like you're talking about with a really good expert you've used before, you're most likely, if they've been unscathed before, to go with that. The next direction I go is asking our colleagues at the firm, you, John, or Amy, or Kevin, or Johnny, or whoever, and say, hey, I need a good you know, neuropsych or whatever, and see if anybody's used anybody really good. Beyond that, I'll reach out to like listservs like Mata and see if anybody has anybody good. And then you kind of go to the you know expert services that are really good at just putting you in touch with giving you a few names with CVs, with some information about how many times they've testified, and then you can reach out to them and talk to them. So there's sources out there, but I think the best thing to do is start with your colleagues who you trust and see if they've used somebody in that like field. Sometimes I've gone online and looked at appellate cases that are similar and find out who's testified in those. And sometimes there's somebody that looks pretty impressive. Yeah. Or look up the literature. That's a great place to start, whether it's a medical issue or even an engineering issue. One thing that I do in product cases, automotive product cases, I have a a local mechanic here in town who works on my cars and I've been going to him for years. Very good friend of mine, close friend, and I couldn't really have him testify because we are good close friends. But when I have a particular issue and it was a brake issue or a stopping issue, whatever it is, I will spend time with the mechanic. Even if it's somebody that you don't know, hire a local mechanic and pay him 50 bucks an hour or 60 bucks an hour. Take him to the crashed vehicle, look at that, crawl under the car. And it's a great start to help me figure out what happened, how the thing is designed, how the car is built, why what failed failed. And then it will lead you to the next step. So I guess what I'm saying is it's not always a one-step process. Sometimes the first person you talk to can educate you on the topic or the issue, and then they can direct you to people with more narrow expertise and something more specific. For instance, we had a case with kidney kind of issues, and you could start with just a regular local urologist and then talk about the issues. And then maybe if you need somebody a little more specialized, you're able to get a recommendation from that doctor. Yeah to somebody else that they maybe refer patients to. There's a saying that once you know how to ask the right question, you're 90% there to figuring things out. And I think that's a great point, John, is like getting yourself smart enough that you know how to ask the right questions. That you Right, knowing what the type of expert you need is a first step. And a lot of times we don't. We don't know what type of expert we actually need if it's a different case, a case we're not, you know, haven't handled before. Getting somebody in that medical field, in that general area to give you some guidance If it's a product, whatever area that is, whether it's a car or whether it's a motorcycle, whether it's a stove. Yeah, I may think I need a mechanical engineer in a product case. And then when I'm talking to the mechanical engineer, he says, what you really need is a metallurgist. That happens all the time. Yep. And I find that as soon as you meet that prospective expert, I immediately go into cross-exam mode. I mean, I have to for self-preservation. I have to be able to test what they're saying because a lot of experts, you know, they've done this all their lives and they jump to conclusions. They might be making assumptions of fact. They might have it wrong or they might be overstating their case, whatever. So I can't have that. That'll ruin my case two years later. But to do that, again, you need to know something about it. So you got to train yourself up to be, you know, a quasi expert almost to have a real conversation with the people that you're interviewing. I think the most important thing you can do 
is to talk to an attorney that has already used that expert all the way through deposition and maybe even trial, because that's really the test. If you just look at them sort of on paper, and even though you meet with them and spend some time with them, unless you've been through a deposition or trial with them, that's really when they're tested. That's when you're going to really find out what kind of expert they are. You know, once you have the right kind and you have a name of someone that you think can handle what you need them to handle, that checking references of a lawyer who's used them is part of a bigger like background check you always need to do, right? You need to talk to lawyers who've used the expert before. You need to Google your expert to see what shows up on the first couple pages because the other side's going to do that. Check what kind of baggage they have. Try to get prior depots, especially depots where they've testified about the same issue that you're addressing in this case. You better make sure they haven't said the opposite before. Yeah, I think part of it too is once you've gotten far enough along in the process where you're considering hiring the expert, one of the things you need to be careful about is, especially if it's a very narrow field and they've testified before, a lot before, you want to make sure that they haven't testified in a case that's too factually close to what your case is about. In other words, unless they said the exact same right. thing they're going to say. Right. And case. you know, for instance, if you have a case where somebody did a surgery and during that surgery sutured somebody's ureter, okay, or if they had a surgery and did something else, you got to ask yourself if you're calling that expert to say that the doctor who did that was negligent and it was below the standard of care, you better make damn sure they didn't do it or their partner didn't do the same thing. Because, you know, again, the circumstances could be different when they did it versus somebody else, but that's something you just, if you can avoid it, you want to avoid it. Lawyers might be listening who think, sounds like a good idea. I need to check out their prior depositions. Where do you find them? Trial Smith, um, Westlaw. You can actually find a surprising amount of past testimony on Westlaw if you have Westlaw next. I know Westlaw is pretty expensive, but you can find past trial testimony on Westlaw. You can find past, um, and I'm sure Lex is same thing, past expert reports on there. And do like do I said, they put that under the expert? Like, do you find the name of the expert and then you find those Yeah, things? there's like the expert category and then you type in their name and then it'll have different things that are available on it. Or if you have your expert's testimony list, start calling lawyers or emailing lawyers and saying, hey, can I get a copy of his or her depot from your case? The other thing, too, is there's so much video content out there, YouTube and websites. When you're hiring your own experts, see what's out there. You know, see what videos are out there. I do it all the time when the other side's testifying, and I want to get a video of the expert who I'm going to depose. But look at what videos, look at your own expert's website. If your expert's affiliated with a hospital or a medical clinic, see what their website says, what's listed, what videos are on there. Get back to this issue about the unique circumstances of your case. And this might sound silly, but it could end up blowing up on you. For instance, if you have a case where you're saying that a particular make or model of car is defective and unreasonably dangerous, you better make sure your expert doesn't have one of them or had one of them or their wife's driving one or one of their kids driving one. You also better not um, show up into the courthouse driving it yourself. Right. right. Well, and, and the other thing, you know, for instance, let me give you a more concrete example. I have had a couple cases now involving nurse practitioners. And in Missouri, you know, you have to have a collaborative practice agreement between the doctor and the nurse practitioner. And there are things that need to be set forth in there by statute. And so if you're hiring a doctor or a nurse practitioner to give opinion testimony, standard of care testimony under those circumstances, you better make sure that you look at their collaborative practice agreement. What does their agreement say? Could you say more about those? What is that? It's a collaborative practice agreement is a written agreement. It's required by statute in Missouri and other states where a nurse practitioner can assume certain duties and responsibilities under the supervision of a doctor. 
but it's very specific. I mean, it needs to lay out specifically what things that this nurse practitioner is able to do. For instance, there needs to be a requirement as to what percentages of charts are checked by the doctor on what basis, on a weekly basis, a daily basis. So in other words, there needs to be some specific written detail in terms of how that supervision is going to be done and what responsibilities can be delegated. They must be delegated under this written agreement. Well, if you have a case where you're criticizing a doctor for not supervising a nurse practitioner or a nurse practitioner for going beyond what the agreement allows him or her to do, if you're hiring an expert to talk about that, the first thing you need to see is their collaborative practice agreement. What does theirs say? Is theirs more restrictive or does it address the issue that's being raised in your case? The other thing too, hospitals. A lot of our med mal cases have to do with hospitals and a lot of them boil down to policies and procedures, what they are, whether they have them, whether they don't have them. Again, if you're going to be critical of a hospital's policies and procedures, you can be guaranteed in the course of discovering that case, the other side is going to request policies and procedures from the hospital that your expert works at. Or, or they're has, certainly at least right. going to ask them about it in their depot. Like, yeah, exactly. oh, we exactly. should have this policy. Does your hospital? Well, no. So those are things, and I call them circumstances unique to your case. Okay, once you're sort of satisfied with the background, the qualifications, the biased issues, the baggage, all of those things, and then you start looking at the narrow issues in your case, no matter what kind of case it is. If it's a med mal case, if it's a defective car case, if it's a collaborative practice case, you need to see how those same issues are being handled by your expert. Okay. Yeah. If you got somebody who's putting together a multi-piece wheel and it explosively separates because they didn't have it in a, the crazy cage that you're supposed to air them up in and you hire a tire person, you got to see what their shop looks like, right? Do they have a cage? Do they have a big sign on their wall saying, hey, don't do what this person's saying that you do. Just be careful. We can't really give a complete finite list of things that you need to check out. It's going to depend on the circumstances of your case and what you're alleging. What are you alleging they did wrong? And it's kind of like, is your doctor guilty of the same thing? Is your expert done the same thing in the past? You got to think about those things. And then the standard things you probably need to ask your expert about or find out that applies across any type of case, check their own bias, just like you're going to ask the opposing experts. Have you ever been sued? Have you been sued for the same thing? How much past litigation work have you done? How much money have you made in your career from doing this? What's your percentage plaintiff defendant? You know, you can be sure the opposing side's going to ask how many times you have hired that expert before, just like you were talking about, John, when GM has used the same person 300 times before. If you've used the same person 20 times before, even if they're really, really good, at some point it becomes harmful and you might need to start mixing it up a little bit. In the last case I tried, our expert had a history, a fairly significant history of testifying. He did it mostly for the plaintiff side, which is not unusual in the med mal field or other fields, as we talked about earlier. And he was asked why was always attorneys representing the plaintiff that contacted him. And he said, I think it's because I give him good advice and keep him out of trouble from taking bad cases. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's a good answer. That's a good answer. Yeah. yeah. And it's true. That's something too you can point out. I mean, even if you've used somebody three or four times or more, Think about the times you sent them cases and they gave you the thumbs down. You didn't take the case, right? I mean, that's something to consider too well, and, and I, to balance Yeah, it. experts we've used a lot. I ask them that direct. Pointed out, you've given a depot in cases we've hired you on 10 times. How many times have I consulted you on a case and you said it wasn't a case? Uh, well, 20 times. Got it. So if you don't support it, you tell me. Yeah, and you'll know if you've used them before, but you need to find out how many times they've testified. The worst thing that can happen if there's something that is not helpful for you in your case is to belabor it and make a bigger issue out of it than it already is. So fess up to it. I mean, if the person has made $2.8 million testifying, guess what? 
if they're asked, they say, yes, that's correct. Move on. Yeah. I mean, really, are you in a case where both sides aren't paying people to come in and testify? I've never been in a case where one side has experts who are all doing it out of the goodness of their heart or for charity and the other side's paying their experts. So it cuts both ways. You just need to really go out of your way to uh, address that bias and diminish it in some way or multiple ways because you're really, you're not starting out even, okay? You have somebody who's coming in and they're being paid to be there. They're being paid to review everything. And so just kind of keep that in mind. You need to be extra careful with what you're having your experts say or do, because I think most people believe that people who are being paid to come in and give testimony start out with a little bit of bias. And you don't want to do anything during their testimony or during trial to, you know, put fuel on the fire, to enhance that. You want to do things that counteract that, that diminish that. For instance, a great thing you can do is if there are some things in your case that aren't favorable but need to be conceded, concede them. Having your expert come in and agree with the other side on two or three points where they need to agree anyway, that's not a bad thing. For instance, doctor, you're coming in, you're being critical of the physician on this particular issue during the surgery. You don't have any criticism about this. No, you don't have any criticism of, you know, doing the C-section or the timing of the C-section. None of that. I think it enhances their credibility and sort of beats down that inherent built-in bias. I guess what I'm saying, Eric, it's inherent built-in bias with every expert because they are paid experts. And you need to realize that and be extra careful with them in prepping them and deciding on what you need them to say or want them to say in the case. When you sit down with your expert, is that a conversation you have or is that an investigation? Tell me about the things you can do outside of talking to your well, own expert. I, I start in a general sense and say, do you have a blog? Do you post stuff? Have you given seminars on this? A lot of the stuff is going to be on their CV, but if it's a presentation that they did, stuff on their website, that's not going to be on their CV. So I would just ask about what's your online status? I mean, do you tweet? Do you do blogs? Do you do podcasts? Whatever, because you want to know about those and be able to look at them. I would say this. It's sort of like the reverse of what you do when you're getting ready to depose the other side's expert. All of those things you're interested in because you want to cross-examine them with it, it applies equally to your end. If you don't know what's out there, you're in trouble. If you know what's out there, you still might be in trouble, but at least you'll have some advance notice of it and have some plan to try to mitigate it at trial. Let's talk about the discoverability of written communications. You know, obviously when you're talking to an expert, there's possibly nothing being written down at that point, but some things might be written down and there might be potentially emails exchanged and other preserved communications. I remind experts, so in federal court, that's generally privileged, right? Work product, your written communications with your expert. In most state courts, it's not. I'm sure there's some that it is, but not the ones we primarily practice in Missouri and Illinois, although we do cases all over the country. But regardless, even if it's in federal court, I remind the expert, look, everything that you write down for your own notes and everything you write in an email to me or my staff we should assume the other side's going to get it. Substantive discussions need to happen over the phone. And even with that said, we all have still experienced an expert will email you something. And even if it's just a question and not like a conclusion that you go, I can't use this guy anymore. Like this email exists. I have to give it to the other side. I have to go get another expert. And so I really, really try to stress it heavily. But let's zero in because some people might say, well, that sounds nefarious. It sounds like you're hiding things. But there's a reason why even things that are well articulated, that comport with the facts of the case, 
the other side can use those and sometimes mangle those or twist those yeah. sorts of things. And I assume that's your main concern. I mean, it may be an innocent question or just something that the expert thinks you need to discuss. And ultimately, their opinion is something that's still good for you. But that email still exists to draw it into question. You know what I mean? And it's just shooting yourself in the foot for no good reason. There's also the fact that it's a thought process that's being developed. Yeah, that's so, a so when you say. have an expert who's thinking through the facts but doesn't yet have them all, yeah. something might be said in an email that points to something that later a new fact will say, oh, right. that doesn't so actually So if you want to talk, pick up the phone and call me. Pick yeah, and, up and the Eric, phone you know, let's me. make this really perfectly clear. If your expert creates something we in turn writing, it over. it's turned over, period, okay? What Tim is talking about with the expert, I mean, if you're somebody that's like, oh, well, just tear it up or don't produce it, you wouldn't lose any sleep over any of this, okay? Yeah. But if it's discoverable and it's created, I tell experts, you create it, you save it, and it will be turned over and we will produce it. Every single thing in writing we will produce. You're exactly right on this whole issue. It's a process. When you pick up the phone and you tell an expert, well, I've got this case and here's what it involves, and you talk to them about it and they start taking notes and writing things down, well, you wouldn't expect them. Nobody on earth would expect them to have already formulated their opinions. I mean, that would be crazy. Formulating their opinions, a process. It's reviewing information, ingesting it, figuring it out, studying it, and then going and getting some more information and depots come in. When did you formulate what, right. your opinions? I formulated them progressively over the course, over the course of my of review. Time. And I had an initial opinion. But what happens is they should have questions. They should have concerns. For instance, I've had cases where my expert wrote certain things down with question marks and that information we already had and hadn't gotten to the expert yet. I had asked about those same things in depositions and confirmed what they were concerned about. Well, you know what? It still was 45 minutes in a deposition of a lawyer going through asking them a bunch of silly questions about issues that they knew had already been resolved in the case. Well, and depending on what is before the question mark, a really good lawyer can turn it and make that expert not credible about anything anymore. What I do is I'll go in and have a talk with the expert in the beginning and explain to them this is the way this discovery works. Anything that you put in writing is discoverable. Nothing's going to get thrown out. We are going to save it, retain it, and we are going to produce it in the case. The preference would be for you not to put anything in writing that really doesn't need to be in writing. If it's a summary of the depot or a summary of facts, I'm cool with that. That's not a problem. But in terms of your thought process, your work product, how you're formulating the opinion, I would prefer to not put that in writing until you've actually formulated your final opinions. And part of it is you don't know all the information because I don't know it all yet, right? More stuff's coming in. We're still in the middle of taking depositions. The big advantage that the plaintiff has in this is we get to hire experts before we even agree to take the case. We should have everything we need to know. We should have it all lined up, certainly before the lawsuit is filed. And most of the time, we're talking to experts before we even decide whether it's a case or not, you know, like in the med mouse Well, stuff, we have but, to in med Right, yeah. So I think just letting them know, this is the way it rolls. This is what we need you to do. If you have some burning desire to talk about an issue, you need some information, here's my number. Call me. I will even go so far as to tell them what Tim mentioned, and that is, we could be two, three months into this process. Depending on what you put in writing, we may not be able to use you. And again, it's not something nefarious. It's something that could be taken out of context or some question that they had about another issue that we didn't ask them to address. It's playing by the rules, disclosing what needs to be disclosed. But the other side to that is, I think it's important for your expert to understand that whatever they scribble down in writing is going to get turned over. Yeah. In my own mind, I know I won't remember a lot of things unless I write them down. And I can imagine there's experts that will think, okay, I get it. I'm not going to say my opinions at this early juncture are A, B, and C because I'm still thinking through the process. 
but I need to take notes. I need to gather the information. I need to ask myself questions about what more I need to know, things like that. Yeah. If you get somebody pushing back and say, well, I got it, I use Well, the I think, product. Eric, the distinction I make is if it's factual, if it's a I timeline, have no problem with that. No problem Going at all. Going through the medical records, right. the pertinent things that are important to your opinions, making right. a chronology. If you're making a list or trying to be organized or even deposition summaries where you go through and the witness says this, but yeah. a lot of times I'll see some editorial comment, you know, about why did he say this? Why would he do that? You know, I see it all the right. time. And I don't want an email that says, I don't know yet, but this might be a problem. Like that's what I'm talking yeah, about. Right. If you don't know yet, if something's going to be a problem, maybe don't put it in an email. You're going to get deposed about that question for an hour. The rules require require you to disclose it. We disclose it. We follow the rules. But knowing that and having your expert know that at the get-go saves a lot of heartburn. Yeah. This is rhetorical, but do you think defendant attorneys do the same thing with their I experts? think the good ones, I think most, I think most, most people do. Yeah, most do. Based on the notes I've right. looked at, <laughs> yeah. yes. Like, Almost I, yeah. all the attorneys right. I've worked with, I have absolute confidence I'm getting the same yeah. thing and because I, so many times I've seen, yeah, they didn't want me to see this yes. note. <laughs> right. The case I was just saying, a case I just tried, excellent lawyers, and they're just wonderful to work with, phenomenally professional, honest, ethical, and they have a great reputation. I enjoy working with them, but like Tim said, I've seen things produced <laughs> And I know there are things that they didn't want to. So the record may be voluminous. We could talk for a while and let's do it about the materials that you send the expert. Let me go with two extremes. You send them everything and then you get a bill for $80 billion for review of everything. Yeah. Or you send them only hand-selected things where you think, these are the very important things I want you to see. And, and then you're killed, on, you're killed at the deposition where yeah. they say, well, you didn't see a lot of the important things. So how do you steer the middle ground here? Well, I don't think you have to always send an expert everything in the case. If it would be silly to criticize them not being sent something that has obviously absolutely nothing to do with their opinions. For example, if you have a product case and you have, you know, your liability expert and then you also have medical records, you don't need to send all your clients' medical records to your liability expert and you don't need to send all the design documents to your damages expert. I tend to err on the side of if there can be any headway made by pointing out that I didn't send my expert something that they think they should have at least had. I send it, but I will also have a discussion with my expert about what I'm sending. And I won't tell them you don't need to look at this or that, but give them a heads up of here's what we sent you and making sure they understand here's what this is, here's what this is, just so you can make your own determination of what you need to spend more time on. But don't unnecessarily go through a bunch of stuff if you figure out pretty quickly it's not pertinent. Do, do you make opinions. a list of the materials that you sent? To yeah, them? so we keep track of it. We usually send everything to our experts by share file nowadays rather than through the mail. So you can keep track of in your share file everything that you sent, but we keep an ongoing list that we update if we send new materials that our expert doesn't mess up and forget that they got something. And I hand it to the other side as part of their file. This is everything we sent to them. Part of that too is as the case progresses, more material develops, the other side's experts, their depositions, the exhibits to their depositions, new medical articles maybe that have come forth. You need to keep track of that because you need to know what they have and what they don't have so you can supplement it. And you better find out before you sit down for the depot if your expert added anything to their file that you didn't send. Because hasn't that happened to all of us? They go, well, did you do any research? And you're going, I, they didn't send me. And they go, well, yeah, actually, I looked at these three articles and uh, I have them right here in my file. And you pull them out and you're going, I don't know what's in those. Oh, yeah. my God, <laughs> what's in those articles? Yeah, you'll find out. So ask that some question in your depo yeah. prep. You're going to find out about that. <laughs> yeah. So this conversation is morphing into sometimes getting ready for depositions. But yeah. our topic was on selecting experts. 
just to make clear, this stuff needs to go on before you necessarily have the actual hiring, right? Yeah. I mean, as part of selecting experts, you want to find out about their own research, but you might want to ask them if they're aware of other research already that is going to influence their opinion. And if so, let me know because I want to go read it while I'm still making a decision about whether I'm going to hire you. And materials need to be provided to this potential expert before you can get to the point where you actually hire them. So yeah. we're talking about this process going on before the hiring as well as after. Yeah. John, I see a note about impressing upon the expert the importance of your case. What do you have in mind there? We spend hundreds of hours on the case, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there's a whole lot at stake for both sides in the case. And sometimes I think it's important for the expert to understand how important and significant the case is to your client and also for them to know and understand how important and critical their role is in the case. And what I like doing, that's why I like meeting in person, not by Zoom or just telephone calls. But at some point in the process, I like to have a sit-down meeting. I actually would prefer, it's way more expensive, I bring them to the office here, wherever they're at. I'll have them take a day off or a day and a half, whatever it is, and come in. And the reason for that is I don't want them to be distracted. When you meet with them in their office, things are coming in and out. You're meeting between patients and somebody's coming in and asking questions. They got their phone going. Being able to pull them away from their environment and bring them into your office in an empty conference room and to sit down with them, let them meet you, let them meet your staff, talk about the case, talk about your client. Here's what we're doing. Here's what some of the issues are in the case. Here's what we have you addressing. We've got others addressing these things. And I think if they just see the process, they see the office, they know it was important enough and significant enough for them to stop what they were doing for a day or a day and a half and come in. That way, when you call and say, hey, we need a supplemental deposition or we need this date, it's not a situation where, well, okay, we'll get you a depo, but the doctor doesn't have anything for the next 18 months, okay? I've had that where we're trying to get them on the phone to call about something that came up. You know, I'll be in the middle of taking a deposition of one of the defendant's experts and we'll have trouble getting our expert on the phone for an hour to talk about the prep for that depo, okay? And so I think sometimes if you're real quick on the phone with them, guess what? They're going to be real quick on the phone with you. I don't think there's any other way. Or I haven't figured out a better way of impressing upon them the importance and significance of the case and their involvement in it other than for you to bring them in and talk to them and have them meet people in your office at the very beginning. Part of it too, if they know they're the centerpiece and they're very, very important and critical, I flat out tell them, you're addressing this issue. We can't win this case and we can't make this case without your testimony. You're that important to this case. If you're not able to support it, we fold the tent and go home. We're done, okay? I also talk to them about all the work that we've done already on the case. We might say, you know, we've taken 16 depositions and we've done this. I think part of it is without saying it directly, you're embracing them and making them part of your team. And I think nine times out of 10, not only does it help, it gets them a little emotionally involved in the case also. They want to help. They want to see you succeed versus something about, well, you know, get this over with, I'm busy, you know, that kind of thing. There's nothing like personal connection. Yep. There's nothing like, I mean, and you, you know could, what, it builds great relationships for the next one or the next case. And again, my experts, most of them, I'll call somebody who I've already had, even though it's not their narrow area, especially in the medical field, an expert that you've worked with and you got a good result and you built a good relationship with them. They are experts helping you find experts. Most of them at prestigious hospitals or medical centers. They have referrals. They know if you need a urologist, they got somebody. They know who they send their patients to. I think it also is good for both the expert and the attorney to know that each other is playing it right, not overstating the cases. Yep. That's going to end up 
appropriately exactly. for you and your so, experts. So, you know, before they get to the point where they're actually expressing their final opinions, you want them to hit it right, not too little, because then they don't take full advantage of what their findings are, and not over the top, because then they're going to get hurt, and their own credibility will be hurt on cross-exam. But that's a good point to actually look eye to eye and say, we're trying to get the truth here, something extremely solid that is most effective and not over the top. You know, none of this works if you're not right in the case. Yeah. I mean, none of it works. You can take everything we said and just throw it out the window. If you've got a case where you're trying to prove to somebody night is day and day is night and something happened that didn't happen, you can have the best expert in the world. If they're shoveling a load of shit that nobody's going to believe, it ain't happening. You're not going to go anywhere with that case or with that expert. Yeah. This has been uh, episode two on selecting an expert witness. Hope you've enjoyed it so far. We have more to come. So this has been an episode of The Jury Is Out. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.